Father, thank you for your provision and your care for us. Thank you for the gospel message that has come to us, the gospel message that is contained in your word, and the gospel message that is contained in the word Jesus Christ, who came as incarnate God. Those two words go infinitely beyond our comprehension. How infinite God can be manifested in human flesh, not just looking like a man, but being a man in all its fullness, to be truly God and truly man. Yet, this is our Savior, Jesus Christ, and this is the manifested Word of God. And thank you that that gospel that has come in word and in our Savior has been revealed to us in a saving way so that most of us in this room have come to an understanding of our sin and Christ's death and His blood which atoned for our sin and His righteousness that has been imputed to us, accounted to us, though we are not yet righteous, so that in such a way that you are one who considers us to be righteous, treats us as if we are the very righteousness of Christ himself. And all that is being worked out in our lives on a daily basis so that we are sanctified and made to more look more like our Savior Jesus and having the hope of eternal glory. Such richness this gospel is to us. And thank you, Father, that in this richness of this gospel, you have also given us ministry to care for one another and to go to the nations. And so we pray as we think about ministry at Grace Bible Church that you would think, uh, cause us to think rightly about ministry and cause us to think with anticipation about ministry and what you might be pleased to do uh, in us individually and in us corporately as well as what you might be pleased to do through us, both individually and corporately. Father, would you change us so that we might be agents that you use to change this community and change the world. And Father, we commend ourselves to you. Would you guide our time in your word in such a way that you're honored, you're glorified. We pray in his name. Amen. In 1851, Queen Elizabeth of Great Britain, through the influence of her husband, Albert, opened the great exhibition of the works of industry of all nations. The event was held in Hyde Park in London, and people streamed to that exhibit from around the country, Great Britain, but not just from Great Britain, but throughout the world, people flocked to see this great exhibition. One of the major influences of that day and time was steam-driven power, so Among all the other things that were found at that exhibition were things like steam plows and the steam organ and even a steam cannon. But the invention that won a prize for the exhibit was made of 7,000 parts, all driven by steam power, pulleys and bells and whistles and gears. One writer has noted gears that meshed with other gears that hummed in harmony and whirled in perfect synchronization. It was a sight to behold. Interestingly, it accomplished absolutely nothing. It just moved. When you're building a machine or a house or a business or a church, it's possible to forget why you were constructing what you're constructing. And when you do that, you will inevitably start doing some wasteful or even worse, some wrong things. At times... In all of the busyness of the church, we forget what God's plan for the church is. Oh, we have a plan. We know what we want to do. But what's God's plan? And what's God's purpose for the church? One of the core values of Grace Bible Church is that we believe in every member ministry. That is that every member of the body of Christ has a function and a role to play within the church. Every member is a gifted minister. 
They're gifted by God and equipped by the church to serve in the church for the glory of God. And that that is found deeply rooted in the passage that was read for us earlier this morning. Ephesians. I'm going to look with you this morning at three verses primarily. In fact, we're going to spend most of our time in two verses in Ephesians 4, 11 to 13. And if I can give you the theme of that passage in a few words, it is simply this. God's plan is for all his people to serve in the church so that all the church becomes mature. The church is a place where God's people gather to exercise their gifts towards each other and for the benefit of each other. It's where it's where relationships are built. And in the context of those relationships, all of the members are trained and equipped and they use their spiritual gifts in such a way that the church body is built and matured. Simply said, the church is a place where we purposefully equip and prepare people to serve one another. This morning, we're fleshing out our theme for the year, equip the saints. What does it mean to equip the saints? What is God's plan for us to do that? As we make our way through this passage this morning, we will find six provisions, six provisions for equipping and being equipped to help the church become mature. Six provisions for equipping the saints. The first is found in verse one. We're actually going to kind of build, take some time to think about the context in which Paul wrote what he did in verses 11 to 13, and then think about verses 11 to 13 in larger, uh, in a larger chunk of time. The context of equipping. Notice, first of all, that God's provision is a context in which we are Equipping. So you'll remember the book of Ephesians. Hopefully you'll remember the book of Ephesians. Six chapters long is divided into two large sections. Chapters one to three are what we call the indicatives of the spiritual life. That is, it is the declarations about what we are in Christ. It explains this is who we are. This is what God has done for us. This is our spiritual position. It talks about our spiritual condition. You can just flip back a couple of pages to chapter one, verse three. This starts this whole long discussion that's going to permeate the first three chapters. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And from that flows all of the riches of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ and in our salvation. That's the indicatives. That's our position. That's our reality. Chapters four to six are the imperatives of our spiritual life. So based on what we are, he says, now this is what we do. So in chapters 4 to 6, there are 40 imperatives, 40 commands that are based on our position. Because God has done this for you, then you ought to do that. And the verse that sets the tone for that is actually chapter 4, verse 1. And while there's not an imperative in verse 1, it has the force of an imperative. It sounds like an imperative, it reads like an imperative, it reads like something we ought to be doing. Listen to what he says in verse 1. Therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. In other words, this whole section, chapters 1 to 3, has delineated for us our calling. What is, what is our calling to salvation done? What is, what is our position in Christ accomplished for us? And in light of that, we ought to live that way. We ought to conduct ourselves in accordance to and in proportion to that calling. In fact, that word uh, walk worthy has two essential meanings. It means something like uh, corresponding to or matching to or being equivalent to like a a math uh, problem. Two equals one plus one. So two and one plus one are the same thing. They are corresponding. They're matching. They're coordinating. Some of you sometimes will come up to me after worship service and say, hey, pastor, that tie looks really nice. It really works well with that suit. Did Regine pick it for you? Right, so when things coordinate, they fit together, they match. It also means something like it is in balance with. So like scales, where you put one weight on one side and another weight on another side, they correspond to each other, they balance each other out, they're matched. In relation to the spiritual life then, to walk worthy means to live a life that is consistent with Christ. And his calling. There's an equivalence between what we do and what Christ died to accomplish in our lives. They match. Our lives are in keeping with the name Christian that we bear. 
And again, when Paul talks about our calling, he's talking about the purpose for which God saved us. And that purpose is not just to save us so that we don't have hell and wrath. That's certainly part of it. But remember chapter 2, verse 10, we're saved by grace, not of our own works. Verse 10, because of chapter 2, because we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God has designed us, each of us individually for particular works that we might accomplish for him, for his purpose. And he has designed that for us in eternal past so that we might live, walk, conduct ourselves in that way. So when we talk about the context in which equipping happens, we're talking about the theological background in which God has done this amazing, marvelous, miraculous work of saving sinners, adopting them, and progressively transforming them. As we talk about equipping and the context of equipping, when we think about equippers, the context for those who will serve as equippers is that they should be those who are obviously and increasingly living in accordance with that salvation that they've been granted. So we look to people to say, would you serve as an equipper? And we're looking to those kinds of people that are living obviously, transparently, increasingly in a worthy manner of their salvation. To have worthiness as our context also means that everything we're doing in equipping is pushing people, compelling people, encouraging people, helping people to live in a manner that is worthy of their name and reputation as Christians. We're helping people experience salvation as something far more than just fire insurance. We want them to experience the fullness of what Christ has for them today in this world. There's a second provision for us in equipping. It's given to us in verses 2 and 3, and that is the attitude of the equippers. The attitude of the equippers. Verse 2 He gives, first of all, three inward attitudes of those who are living worthy. It would help to look at the right page in your Bible, my Bible, so that I know where I'm going. We're walking worthy, verse 1. How do we walk worthy? These internal attitudes with all humility and gentleness and with patience. Three attitudes, humility. What's humility? Humility doesn't mean that you don't think of yourself at all. It's, it's, it's not saying you have no self-awareness. It is to have a self-awareness that rightly evaluates your position before Christ and how Christ has positioned you in this world. Now, Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. He writes this, Though through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So in other words, he's not saying don't ever think about yourself. But when you do think of yourself and as you do think about yourself, you ought to think about yourself in a right way, soundly, in a healthy way understanding that God has given you a measure of grace to serve His people. He's given you a grace gift, a spiritual gift. And you ought to think rightly about that. So humility doesn't mean don't think about yourself, but it does mean think about yourself in a right way and how God thinks about you. Gentleness, second attitude. And that word is sometimes translated meek. He does not mean weak, you know that. It means power, but power that's under control. It's, I'm going to update the scenario. The way people usually talk about it, it's like, you know, like a, uh, like a horse. Some of you have horses, but most of us don't. Um, but I have a few horses underneath the engine of my car, right? And so gentleness means it's like the power of a dragster underneath the control of a deft hand at the clutch and the gear shift. It's power. Immense power, but it's controlled and used in an appropriate way. In biblical terms, as we think about gentleness, it's the control of the Holy Spirit. Someone who is under the Spirit's power, under the Spirit's word. He's submitting himself to the direction of God 
and the power of God in his life. A gentle person is willing to endure suffering, endure hardship, endure difficulty instead of inflicting it on others. He is also patient. And that refers to a holding out of the mind before it gives room to action or passion. He waits. He endures. A patient man is steadfast. He doesn't give in. He endures even when waiting is long. That's what's going on internally. What What does it look like? What are we pushing people to in living in a worthy manner? Well, there's all kinds of things, but Paul particularly points to these three inward attitudes. We want to be forming these things in those whom we are building into. And those who are builders, those who are equippers, these things ought to be readily apparent. These verses also identify not just two inward attitudes, but two outward evidences of living worthily. Um, And these also should be goals in our equipping. Notice what he says, end of verse 2, showing tolerance for one another in love. Tolerance is simply enduring. It's putting up with difficult behavior. Listen carefully. It is not what our culture says about tolerance. Biblical tolerance is not giving a blessing to sinful activity, but it is patient with sinful activity. It understands the power of the flesh. It understands the condition of the unbeliever. It understands the bondage and the weight and the hardship and the total inability of the unbeliever to do anything but what he's doing. And it understands for the believer that, that the flesh is still hanging on and there's difficulty and there's trial. And so they endure and they tolerate in love, serving and caring for and persisting with that person because they love them. They're willing to be poured out in serving them, acting with the other person's best in mind. That's one external activity, showing tolerance and love. And then he notes another one, verse 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit, preserving the unity of the Spirit. This doesn't mean that we in the church make ourselves unified, right? We alluded to this very briefly last week. The end of Jesus' high priestly prayer at John 17, he makes clear we are unified. We are connected. We're, when we're, when we are adhered to Christ in salvation, when we're identified by the Spirit of God in spiritual baptism to Jesus Christ, when we are considered in Christ, when Christ is our life, then we are, by definition, connected to one another. We are unified. The question isn't, are we unified? The question is, are we living as if we are unified? Uh, I, I want to be careful, not go from preaching to meddling, but here's my shot at it. It's not unlike a marriage relationship. When the preacher says, I now pronounce you man and wife, he could say, I now pronounce you one. From that point forward, that couple is indivisible. They are in the eyes of God. One unit. Two personalities. It's not unlike the triune relationship, right? It's two distinct personalities, but they're one. You can't tear them apart. The question isn't, are Regine and I one? Yes, that was decided 35 and a half years ago. We're one. The question is, do we act like we're one? Are we doing things to cultivate increasing oneness, unity, harmony? Or are we doing things to push each other away? And that's the very thing that Paul's talking about here in relation to the church. Are you doing things that accentuate, enhance, demonstrate your oneness? Or are you doing things to drive wedges into relationships that are going to push you apart? We ought to be acting always both in our marriages and in our church in such a way that unity 
is enhanced. Worthy walkers are the people who protect unity, defend it. So you take these five characteristics, you put them together, and what you have is a common commitment to pursue inward characteristics that have overflow into outward actions with others in the body of Christ. So the fundamental work of ministry is to preserve the unity that God has given us by making every believer mature in Christ. And it takes all of us doing that. That's part of the point that Paul's making here. This is, this is the attitude. This is, this is the attitude of the equippers, and this is also the goal of what we're trying to accomplish in those whom we're equipping. How do you do that? Well, third provision is that there is a grace that is given for equippers. Verses 4 to 6 give us some of the ways that we are one. So verses 4 to 6 tell us some of, the, some of the ways in which we are unified together. And then verse 7 contains a key statement for this section. Notice what he says in verse 7. To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. To each one of us, grace is given. Now he's not referring here to the grace of salvation. That's the grace that really permeated the first three chapters, particularly chapter 2 and particularly that early section in chapter 2. We're dead in our sins and God in His grace reached down to us and made dead sinners alive in Christ. That's not what he's talking about here. In fact, it's interesting. It's not just that he says in verse 7, grace was given, but he says the grace was given. A particular kind of grace was given. A grace that enables and equips people for ministry. And it is evident as we flow through this passage that what Paul is talking about here, the grace that he's talking about, is the grace of spiritual gifts. So spiritual gifts have been given to us that we can care for one another. And notice that he says each one of us has received some of these grace gifts that flow from Christ's hand. So so there's none that is left destitute. There's none who hasn't received from these grace gifts. There's no believer that doesn't have God sustaining grace in his life. Someone, one commentator has said, no one misses out on Christ's bounty. I like that. Nobody missing out. I, I mean, it's not polite, but, you know, look around the room. And you look around and you see people that have been given the grace of salvation and no one has missed the grace of God's spiritual gifting. Everybody's got one or more. And they've been given to us as a manifestation of God's kindness. The world divides itself up into haves and haves not, have nots, right? He has this, he doesn't have that. He has this, he doesn't have that. That other person has this and he doesn't have that. And we gravitate toward the haves and we reject the have nots. In the body of Christ, there are only haves. No have nots. We all have that same position. We all have the same spirit. We have the same spirit. We have the same salvation. We have the same Christ. We have the same cross. We have the same ascension. We have the same word. We have different particular gifts, but we all have the same kind of gifting to sustain us in life and ministry. All the gifts that God gives, either the spiritual gifts that He gives us or spiritual graces for daily living will enable us to fulfill His calling for us. We are weak people. We are inadequate people. We are broken people but we have exactly the grace that we need to care for other weak, broken, inadequate people. God's grace, His spiritual gifting, equips one thirsty sinner to show another thirsty sinner where the water of life is. You and I have been called to preserve the unity of the church, and we individually are graced by God with all of the necessary tools to fulfill that task. Wherever God has called you, to serve in Him in His church. He will sustain you with His infinite grace and His spiritual gifts to accomplish that task. He will give you daily everything you need to do what He's called you to do. One writer says this, We have proved beyond any doubt that He means what He says. His grace is sufficient 
Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. We pray that if any, anywhere, are fearing the cost that the, that if, let me start over. We pray that if any, anywhere, are fearing that the cost of discipleship is too great, that they may be given a glimpse into that treasure in heaven promised to all who obey. So said Elizabeth Elliot shortly after her husband Jim was martyred. There's grace enough. You feel overwhelmed about the people that God has woven into your life, that He has entrusted to you to care for? There is grace enough, not in your own strength, but in His strength to care for them. That's His grace. There's a fourth provision. It is the particular gifts that are given to the equippers. Verse 11, the apostle defines for us four gifts that God has given to the church for the purpose of protecting the unity of the church. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Those four gifts, apostle, prophets, uh, evangelists, Pastor teachers refer to both the gifts and to the people. So he's not just given a gift, but he's given a person. He's given people to the church to carry out their gifting within the context of the church so that the church is built up and edified. So he gives functions, responsibilities, and he also gives relationships. Interaction, intermingling, connectedness of people so that we care for one another in the context of loving relationships. The apostle is also particularly emphatic. He throws an extra pronoun in there and says, He, He gave, that is the ascended, the sovereign, the authoritative Christ of verse 10, has given all these gifts through the Spirit. So it's God's choosing, it's God's allocation, and it's God's decision to put people and churches and gifting together in particular kinds of ways. Now, he says, verse 11, that there are four gifts, and those four gifts can be divided into two broad categories. There are going to be two gifts that I'm going to call foundational gifts. Those are the gifts of apostleship and prophecy. These are the gifts that the men that established the church were granted in the establishment of the church. In fact, just flip back one or two pages to chapter 2. And he says in verse 19, chapter 2, verse 19, So then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. So you're in God's family, in God's church, in God, Christ's body. You're connected to one another. And in the context, he's talking about both Jew and Gentile. They've all been brought together into this one new entity, one new being, the church. And then notice what he says in verse 20. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So the apostles and prophets had foundational work. And notice that he says, having been built. In other words, the building is finished. The work of the apostles and prophets has ceased. It's ended. It's finished. And them having laid this foundation, now the rest of the building of the church is being built in normative ways through other gifts. So we would say that those gifts, apostleship and prophecy, have ceased. That's a two-minute, maybe a three-minute explanation. There's a whole bunch of more theology behind that. I actually preached on that back in Romans chapter 12. You can go back and listen to that uh, sermon if you're interested in that. The foundational gifts, second category of gifting in this verse, permanent gifts. And he says he's given permanent gifting of both people and gifts in the people of evangelists and then pastors and teachers. These are gifts that brought people into the church, that's evangelism, and then equipped people once they are in the church, that's pastor teacher. And these again are still available and they're still essential. The word evangelist actually only appears a handful of times in the New Testament. It appears here 
And then it appears in Acts 21 describing Philip and 2 Timothy 4 describing describing Timothy. So that's the only time uh, this word evangelist appears in the New Testament, though the idea of evangelism and other derivative words, related words about evangelism are much more common. And the word evangelist or evangelism simply means to declare the good news, to announce the good news the good news of what? The good news of Jesus Christ. The good news of, of liberty and freedom from sin and forgiveness of sin and transformation that comes through Jesus Christ and, and the hope of glory. A better life now and a better life then. Not a better life now like somebody in South Texas talks about, just for clarity's sake, right? I said a better life. I didn't say the best life. Um, a better life, a transformed life, a, a life freed from sin. That happens now, and then we have the hope of glory when we have the best, the eternal, the infinite, the glorious, the magnificent. And it all comes through the forgiveness of sins and restoration, reconciliation with God. That's the evangelist. Not only does he give evangelists to bring people into the church, but he also gives pastors and teachers once they are in the the church. And the question is, is he talking about two kinds of people, pastors and teachers, or is he talking about one kind of person, a pastor who also is a teacher? Um, I think he's probably talking about one gift and one person, pastor, teacher. So a shepherd who teaches. And I get that because the other three words all have uh, the article, the. So he says, the evangelist, excuse me, the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor and teacher. And so I think he's lumping pastor and teacher together with that one article to make it one gift. So it's one pastor or group of pastors or group of elders who also happen to have the gift of teaching by which they equip others in the body of Christ. And this is simply a reminder that everything we do here is foundational in teaching. If we're going to equip others, it's rooted in teaching, training, to connect it to some of your biblical counseling, training, and teaching. It's renewal of the mind. Everything we're doing is helping you to think in a new way, to to put off the old man by thinking a new way so that you can put on new practices that are contrary to the old way of living that you had before your salvation. And that's all rooted in teaching. If we're going to think a new way, we've got to be taught and trained and discipled and equipped. So as you think about evangelists, as you think about pastors, te- pastor teachers, the gifts that are given to the church, think about it this way. God is using people. He's using frail men with spiritual gifts to accomplish these purposes of him. The people are also gifts to us. Aren't you thankful for the evangelist in your life? that spoke the gospel to you in such a way that it compelled you to trust Christ. Where would you be without an evangelist? You would be dead in your trespasses and sins. God uses people, and then God uses people to open and explain the word of God to you. And, And in all honesty, he has given us an astounding number of gifted, skilled people with the word of God in this body. I'm just so thankful for that. God's using people. But notice this as well. He's not just using people. God is using all the people in the body. He's using all the people in the body to be trained by those who have these gifts so that they can use their particular gifting within the body of Christ. We're going to see that fleshed out in just a moment. One other thing I want you to see with this. God's ministry is not complicated, right? When he talks about Some are coming as pastors and teachers for the equipping. And he's going to talk later in the chapter about, you know, putting off sin, renewing your mind, putting on acts of righteousness. It's not complicated. Ministry is hard, but it's not complicated. It's not complicated in that ministry is simply the combination of exposing and explaining the gospel to unbelievers and then training believers to live for God and for live for Christ. And we want to do that with creativity and we want to do it with energy and we want to do it with passion. But we're never going to depart from those basic principles. 
I like, um, I like doing home fix-up projects. Some of that has been necessitated over the years by things that happen in my house and to my house. And so um, over the years, I've accumulated some tools. I don't have a great tool collection, but, you know, I've got a, I've got a decent homeowner's set of tools. I've got saws, and it was a happy day when I got a sawzall. I was so excited, <laughs> right? I've got all these tools. For Christmas, one of the things I... My toolbox was breaking, and um, so one of the things I asked for Christmas was a new toolbox, and I got a really sweet toolbox. And so yesterday, I took my old toolbox, and I set it up on my workbench, and I put it next to my new toolbox, and I started moving stuff around. Now it's, oh yeah, I can do this, I can do this, oh I forgot I had this tool, I can do that with that. But you know, most fix-up projects around the house... Give me either a slotted screwdriver or a Phillips screwdriver and a hammer and I can fix most anything. Not completely true, but you can do a lot with a hammer and a screwdriver. You can break a lot of stuff with both of them too and I've proven that. And it's the same thing with ministry. There's lots of gifting and there's lots of different ways that a gifting is a proportion. But it's really rooted in the gospel and teaching. And that's what we're about. That's what ministry is about. It's not, it's not overly complicated. Grace Bible Church is founded on the work of the gospel and the integrity of the word of God to change people's lives. That's what we do. It's not complicated. Why does God give us all this stuff? What's the purpose? I want you to notice the purpose, verse 12. The most important part of this chapter is not only what gifts are given, but why are they given? What's the end? What's the goal? What's the prepositions? Prepositions are words that help us show relationships. So think about a box and all the kinds of words that you can use in relation to describing your position to that box. That's a preposition. You're on the box or over the box or under the box or around the box or in the box or outside of the box, right? Those are, those are prepositions. Your uh, grammar lesson has been brought to you by your nerdy pastor. <laughs> Some of you are going to use that sometime this week. I don't know when, but somebody's going to use that this week. Notice the prepositions in verse 12. For, that's purpose, the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, that's an extended purpose, to the building up of the body of Christ. That's the end goal. So you have two prepositions that denote purpose and one that denotes an end goal. And all of this stuff that is done by apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, are for the purpose of equipping the saints. That's the key word for the day. That's the key word for the year. Key words. Equipping the saints. What does the word equipping mean? It was used in a variety of ways. In biblical times, it was used about a medical doctor setting a bone. It was used for fishermen who would equip their nets, fix their nets, mend their nets, tie their nets back together after they'd been torn. It was used of military and naval preparations for battle so that as they're going into battle, they are equipped, prepared. It's used of correction and healing in relationships in the church body. So we find that usage in Galatians chapter 6 verse 1. It's used about a teacher training a student so that after the student finishes with the teacher, he is equipped to do that which he has been taught. It's used of a home having everything it needs to function well. It's complete. It has a hammer and a screwdriver. It's finished. It has everything it needs. In this verse, the equipping points to the fact that the body is taught and the body is prepared for any need that might arise. As you think about your pastors and elders, and as you think about those who serve as equippers, disciplers, those who are going to be teaching in entrusted, and those who are working in faith fit in our discipling ministry, and you're thinking about counselors who are equipping their counselees, and Awana leaders who are equipping their protégés in Awana, and Sunday school teachers, and children's church. As you're thinking about all of that, you're thinking about the fact that elders and teachers are not doing all of the work, but they are equipping, preparing people 
to do the work in the body. He's correcting the idea that elders have to do everything. Several decades ago, when I was installed here as a pastor, my father preached the installation message, and he reminded me and us what the perfect pastor is. And I quote, The perfect pastor preaches exactly 15 minutes. Well, there goes that one. (laughs) The perfect pastor preaches exactly 15 minutes. He condemns sin but never embarrasses anyone. He works from 8 a.m. to midnight and also is the church janitor. He makes $60 a week, wears good clothes, drives a new car, and gives $50 a week to the poor. He's 28 years old. I was then, not so much now. He's 28 years old and has been preaching for 25 years and is a wonderfully gentle and handsome man. He loves to work with teenagers and spends countless hours with senior citizens. He makes 15 calls daily on church families, shut-ins, and hospital patients, and he's always at the office when needed. That's the perfect pastor. Can't do it. I'm out. And the point is, the pastor or the team of pastors that we call elders can't do it all. It takes the whole body. The role of those who are in leadership and even on down is to equip, to prepare so that others carry out the work of the ministry. And and just a side note, I am so thankful for this church body where an uncommonly high number of people are involved and they're connected and they're building into others and they're serving one another's and they're caring for one another's, caring for one another. And all that is, again, why we have GBI and why we have Awana and why we have the Center for Biblical Counseling and Discipleship and we have preaching and home groups and faith fit and entrusted and, 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 and. It's all about preparing. And it's all about caring for the people who have been entrusted to us. Our culture has developed a do-it-for-me attitude. Our culture has the attitude, and even in a lot of churches, has the attitude, I'm going to sit on the couch and I'm going to wait for somebody else to care for my needs. And that happens in a church. It's devastating. That'll kill a church in a hurry. A healthy church is not a church with pastors and elders frenetically running around trying to care for everybody, but it's a church where pastors and elders are, are integrally involved and connected and active and busy about preparing others so others can carry out the work of the ministry. And we've talked about it a lot of times. You know, it used to be my goal if somebody gets sick, I'm at the hospital. And it's like, by the time I get to the hospital now, it's like there have been six people already there. And praise God. Not that I don't need to go, not that I don't want to go, but praise God that others in the body are saying, there's somebody in the hospital, how can I go care for them? And they do that. The goal of Christian ministry, one writer said, is quite simple. Are we making and nurturing genuine disciples of Christ? The church always tends towards institutionalism and secularization. The focus shifts to preserving traditional programs and structures, and the goal of discipleship is lost. The mandate of disciple-making provides the touchstone for whether our church is engaging in in Christ's mission. Here's the question. Are we making genuine disciples of Jesus Christ? That's our goal. The fact of the matter is, it's not a matter of whether you are a minister and whether you are a servant and whether you are engaged. You are. The question is, are you being effective? It's like a counseling, right? We say everybody is a counselor. Every believer is a counselor. The question isn't, are you a counselor? The question is, what kind of counselor are you? Is your counsel biblical and godly, pointing people towards Jesus Christ, or is it secular and weak and inadequate? And the same thing is true about ministry. We're all servants. The question is not, are you a servant? The question is, what kind of servant are you? And our goal is to prepare people for service. That's that's the next clause. Equipping the saints for the work of service. That, word, that phrase, for the work of service, we might translate literally this way, for the deeds of deaconing. For, for, the, for, the, for the work and the activity and the deeds of helping others, of caring for others. Let me just give you a couple of implications here. Again, it's a reminder, every member is a minister. 
The goal is for every member of the body to be fully engaged, active in in the body of Christ. There, there is no category for people who attend but don't participate. There's no sidelines in the church. Everybody's on the field. Everybody's active. Says Ray Stedman, all Christians are in ministry. Who called you to ministry? Jesus Christ when he saved me. That's, that's true. That statement is true of every believer. It's not just true of preachers. It's not just true of elders. It's not just true of deacons. It's not just true of missionaries. It's true of every believer. He's called you into ministry. The question is, how effective are you? Says John MacArthur, spiritual service is the work of every Christian, every saint of God. Attendance is a poor substitute for participation in ministry. Some are more prominent. Some are less prominent. But everyone participates and serves. Every member is a minister. And and the, the healthiness of the body is dependent on that. And the healthier the church, the more you're going to see lots of people interconnected with one another and caring for one another. Let's just note this. The work is work, right? Paul doesn't call it fun. He doesn't say for the fun of ministry. And a lot of times it is. But a lot of times it is what it says it is. It's work. It's hard. It's labor. It's difficult. Like you, there are things that keep me awake at night, that wake me up in the middle of the night and is rolling through my mind and I'm praying and I'm concerned and I'm thinking, strategizing, planning. How can I care for this soul to draw this one back, to protect this one, to love this one? It's work, but it's also a joy, isn't it? shared this story, Regine and I, after the first interview that we did here about the pastorate, um, Regine and I were driving back home and we were headed into Crescent, coming down the hill into Crescent and we were talking about it and I said, I'd interviewed at another church and uh, that was, that was going to be a challenge and I said, if we go there, that other church It'll be hard work. I think we can do it, but it'll be hard work. If we come here, it'll be hard work. It'll be fun. There have been hard things. There have, there have been days I've wept. I've wept with you. I've wept for you. But it's been immense joy. You know, what I think about all the time is of all the 8 billion people in the world, that God could have chosen to shepherd this flock. He's graced me to be one of them. It's, it's such an immense joy. And that's the way we always ought to be thinking about ministry. You think about those people that are hard in your life, those people that are a challenge in your life, those people that are struggling in your life, that you're trying to come alongside and point them back to Jesus and saying, don't go that way. That's destruction. That will kill you. Go this way. And they're bent to going that way. And you pour yourself out. And you labor for them. Of all the people in the world. God's put you into their lives to help them. And brothers and sisters. That's a privilege. And we ought to give thanks for that. That's our joy. And the work of service is building people. Not building Service is speaking the word of God into the lives of people. It is so easy to be task-oriented. We're not task-oriented. We're people-oriented. We're caring for souls. It's about relationships. Now, you're saying, wait, 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 wait a minute, Pastor. I remember a chunk of the state of the church thing last week. You were talking about building plans for the coming year and parking lots and, you know, stuff. Yeah, that's infrastructure so that we can accomplish people goals. That's stuff that we need in order to accomplish the caring of souls. But we don't confuse the two. We know it's not about parking lots. It's not about more buildings. Listen, there are governmental entities that make building buildings challenging. I'll just leave it there. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested not in dealing with those issues. I'm interested in caring for souls. But we do that so that we can care for souls better. And that's what we're interested in. Ministry and relationships. 
are the privilege of every believer in the church body. If you're a 10-year-old or an 87-year-old believer, God has put you in the body to serve someone else with your gift. I have the Bible. I have the Holy Spirit. I have a gift. I can serve. That's our mindset. One last thing I want you to notice here. One last provision I want you to notice. And that is the goal of equipping. What's the goal? End of verse 12. For the building up of the body of Christ. The result of using gifts and building into people and equipping people and preparing people is so that the church is built up. We're simply talking about spiritual progress Spiritual maturity, that's what we see in verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith so that we live out our reality, so that we are unified with one another until we all attain to that unity and until we attain to the knowledge of the Son of God, until we all attain, verse 13, middle of the verse, to a mature man, until we all attain to a measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So the goal is unity so that we all look increasingly like Jesus Christ. So that we're no longer, verse 14, like children. Here, Paul is painting for us a picture. He's giving us an artist rendering, just like we have some artists rendering over there of what the buildings might look like. So Paul is giving us an artist rendering of what a spiritual body of Christ looks like. It's unified. It's mature. Verse 14, we're not like children. Verse 15, we're growing up into all aspects, into him, into Christ, even Christ, so that all of our body looks like Jesus, like Jesus Christ. So every member and every individual and the entire church body looks like Jesus Christ so that the whole body is fitted together and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. So every part of the body is working so that it's fitting together and it's functioning well and it produces the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love so that we're built up, unified, joined together. That's the goal. We're not just doing stuff. We're not 7,000 connected parts driven by steam but with no end. We're all these different parts with different giftings working together to build a church and a people that edify Christ that are worthy of the name Jesus Christ. Let me just give you some implications from this. Seven implications. We'll move quickly. This is going to influence the way we structure ministry. It's always going to be people over programs. It's always going to be about how can we connect every member into the body of Christ. It's going to be substance over style. I mean, bells and whistles are nice. I like bells and whistles. Don't tell anybody. I actually like the drums. It's kind of cool. But it's not about bells and whistles. It's about substance. It's about teaching. It's about using drum sets, not as an end to themselves to glorify the drum set. It's about using drum sets to facilitate singing, to facilitate worship and delight in our Father in heaven. It's about substance. Secondly, every believer has a function in the church. You may not have a job title, but you have a function. You have a role. You have a position to play. Building, preserving relationships are always going to be a priority. We're going to work hard to preserve unity because God has given us the unity and he's given it to us to protect it, to keep it. And we keep that unity by pursuing reconciliation and encouraging fellowship and service of one another. Listen, I've had people come to me and say, Hey, Terry, when you spoke to someone... I saw them take offense at what you said or how you said it. I think it would be helpful to go and talk to them. Praise God that someone confronted me over my sin so that I could restore a relationship. And that's what we're, that's what we're all about, is helping other people walk with Christ. Another implication, everyone needs someone. No lone rangers in the church. We're not alone no matter how mature anyone is, 
He's not attained perfection and he still needs the ministry of others to help him. I need you and you need me mutually interacting with one another, caring for one another. Some days I minister to you, some days you minister to me. Some days you minister to the person sitting next to you, some days the person sitting next to you ministers to you. Or we might say that about people that are sitting on opposite ends of the building. We all need someone caring for us, building into us, serving us, helping us. Never make assumptions about the inability of someone to change. It's not you that changes people. It's not the individual that changes himself. What changes him? The gospel that comes through evangelists and is mediated through believers in the context of the church by teaching. And it is that gospel and that word and the effectiveness of that teacher that changes people's lives. It may be that the person is not changing rapidly so that Christ can expose more things about you in your own heart that need to be changed so that you also can grow and develop and mature. Always work. Always look for and take opportunities to cultivate relationships so that you will have an opportunity to stimulate others to maturity in Christ. Again, that's the end goal. Our work isn't just work. Our work is how can I do and serve and act in such a way that people move towards Christ? If you're taking a picture, you need one more. (laughs) Stimulating others to maturity is not optional. It's for all of us. Just like a mother feeds and changes a newborn baby, every believer works to help others mature in Christ. And sometimes it's repetitive, right? You get that newborn baby. And I remember our firstborn laying on that changing table one day when we just got her. She's brand spanking new. You know, we're still just kind of wiping all the stuff off, cleaning her up. And I remember looking at her on that changing table. I didn't think this, fortunately. I didn't say, okay, change that diaper. We're done. I mean, how many diapers did we change over the years? Ah, Hundreds. (laughs) I've got a story, but it's for another day and another time. (laughs) Changing diapers all the time, right? And you're doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over. And you don't go, stupid kid, just messed up another diaper. You expect me to do this for you again? Yeah. That's why God put you in that child's life. Until they get to maturity and can take care of that on their own, they need you helping them. Ah, same thing works in the body of Christ. They need us to help them. Let's help them. The church is not a place for professionals. The church is not a place for entertainment. It's a place where all God's people gather to exercise their gifts to benefit each other. It's tempting to say, I'm not needed in the church. I have nothing to contribute. Oh, friend, the opposite is absolutely true. You not only have something to contribute to the care of others in the body of Christ, it is necessary for you to care for others in the body of Christ. We need you. We need you equipping. We need you to be equipped. And we need you to serve. And then Christ's body is built and God is glorified. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for... Reminder of a passage that I trust we are all well familiar with. But this is, this is our heartbeat. This is, this is what we do. This is what we've always been about at Grace Bible Church. This has always been what your church has been about. It's always been about people using their gifts to train others so that the whole body carries out the functioning of spiritual gifting and spiritual care so that your body is well cared for built up, looking like Jesus Christ. And Father, in the coming year, we want to carry on in the theme from last year, excelling still more by equipping the saints. In your grace, we've been positioned to equip others well. We've been doing it for a long time. But might we persist in it? Might we have it front and center in our minds so that everything we're doing Every aspect of ministry, we're always saying this is about equipping. This is about being equipped. This is about serving as one who is equipped. 
And Father, might we do all these things with joy, with delight, with gratitude, with humility. Might we ourselves, whether we're equipped or being equipped, be those who are pursuing pursuing maturity in Christ. And might we do all these things, as we've already said, for your glory and honor. Oh, Father, we want people to delight in you. Might our labors in equipping the saints produce just such delight in you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.